Lone Star 187 is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Case File 01, Joyce White. So the story of Joyce White came to us through our mom. We're from Abilene, Texas, and our grandfather worked for the city there for a long time. And when my mom and dad first got married, they lived with my grandparents. And so when my grandfather would have to go on late night runs to do random stuff that the city of Abilene assigned to him, my dad would go with him. They got a call late one night to go pick up some bloody carpet from an alley and they dispose of it in the landfill. Our mom told us the story and so we started doing research. Most of everything that we've learned that we're going to be reading to you is from newspapers.com, newspaperarchive.com, from Abilene Reporter News, El Paso, all newspapers from all over Texas. At approximately 11 p.m. Friday, July 14, 1967, Alfred and Joyce White are arriving to their home on 1874 Jeanette Street from a night on the town. They had gone to dinner and a movie. Alfred walks him and his wife to the door. He unlocks the front door and holds the door open for his wife. As Joyce proceeds to go inside the home, she heads towards the back of the house, towards their bedroom. Alfred stays back in the living room to watch TV when he hears his wife scream. Alfred rushes to the bedroom to find two large African-American men standing in their bedroom. One man is standing in the far corner, and the other is standing in front of his wife, who lay bloody and unconscious on the floor of their bedroom. Then, Alfred is struck in the head and knocked out. Joyce White was born in Texas in 1929 to Willie May and Ernest Milliorn. She had a younger brother named Ray. I found an article in the paper where she wrote a letter to Santa, and I guess back then they wrote letters to Santa and they were published in the newspaper, but she was asking for gifts for herself and also for her brother, Ray. Joyce graduated high school from Abilene High School in 1947. She then worked for Southwestern Bell Telephone Company. Her family was pretty prominent in the community. They hosted parties. In particular, there was one that, that was in the paper. It was for some bridal party, which was the same year she graduated high school. Not her bridal, not her wedding, but a different one. Um, in 1950, she was named an honoree at a gift tea given by a Miss Mrs. Chester Roberts of Abilene, Texas, which was also one month after Al and Joyce were married. The other thing that I found interesting in all these articles is that most of the time when they were talked about them in the paper, they weren't like Joyce... White. It was Mrs. Al White, or in this case, Mrs. Chester Roberts. So it was like you were only known by your husband's name, which I didn't really like that. But so then in 1959, she went to work for Frontier Stamp Redemption. Coworkers described her as bubbly and happy. She was also always thinking about others. When other people had birthdays coming up, she would make sure they had presents and were thought of during their special day. Alfred White, Joyce's husband, born in 1930 to Mr. W.W. White and Mabel Earl Lee White. He had a sister named Billy Ruth, and they grew up in Ovalo, Texas. I also, like I said before, found some articles um, very similar in the paper, which I also thought was interesting. And it 
to me, it's it read as if the parents obviously wrote the letter asking for what they think their kids would want. Because a three-year-old usually doesn't know what they want right. for Christmas. So it was interesting how the parents would write what they think their children would want and then put it in the paper. And there was like pages of them. He graduated from South Taylor High School and attended Tarleton College. While in college, he worked um, as an office manager at Radford Grocery in Abilene. He went to school to be a policeman. And he ended up being a Texas Highway Patrolman, and he made a very good name for himself in the area. He scored the highest on his tests whenever he tested to be a policeman, so he kind of set the precedent for his career. I read probably 15 or 16 articles spread out over the 1950s and the early 60s of articles where he found cars flipped over in the ditches, cars on fire, and he'd pull them out of the fire, you know, cars in icy conditions hanging off and we know how bad Ranger Hill is. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a trucker that was halfway off and he helped the trucker out. Many stories of him helping other people and putting himself in danger to help them. So very similar to Joyce where she did a lot for people and cared for people. A lot of his fellow officers described him as a rule follower and cared for people. He worked as a patrolman for 14 years all around the um, Abilene area and surrounding cities like Baird, Clyde, and Eastland are the main highways that go through there, you know, Highway 20. Mm -hmm. And that's mainly where he patrolled. So Alfred and Joyce met each other whenever their two towns merged together to one school district. Alfred lived in Ovalo, is where he was born, and Joyce actually lived in Tuscola, which, as we know, that area is right next to Ovalo. Mm -hmm. So the two districts merged together to become one, so they started going to school together. So Ovalo is where we go every year at Christmas. All of our family is from the Abilene area. We have family in Tuscola as well, so we're in that area at least twice a year. Our wonderful aunts and uncles rent the Ovalo Baptist Church, and we go and have a Christmas and Easter family gathering. So this area is very close to us, so it, it's one of the other reasons why we, we chose this one, because whenever we talk about these places, we have an immediate mental image of where this is and what it looks like and, and why these two would merge, because it's probably two little schools that would probably get better funding or whatever with combining to one giant one. So they started dating when they met at the schools. Uh, they fell in love on a ball field on Friday the 13th in 1946, and they would date for four years, and they got married on Friday, October the 13th of 1950 at Joyce's grandparents' house, which is very interesting. They met on Friday the 13th, and then they got married on Friday the 13th. It's a little creepy. A little creepy. Joyce's grandparents' house, uh, Mr. and Mrs. J.E. Klepper. Joyce was 22, and Alfred was 21. After their wedding, they spent an 11-day honeymoon in San Antonio, Austin, and Moody, Texas, which I don't even know where Moody, Texas I've is. I've heard of it. Um, two years later, they had their only child, Scotty, and according to their friends, they were a model couple. They never had any troubles. They were always seen together very happy and never had any troubles. So the days leading up to Joyce's murder, her co-worker, Miss Howard Hill, stated that Joyce was very excited about the weekend that was coming up. She had taken the weekend off, and so had her husband. So they had a full four-day weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, to themselves. On Friday, she would be having a, quote, feminine routine of getting her hair done, as well as her nails. Afterwards, she stopped by her job at the Frontier Stamp Redemption Center and visited with her co-workers around midday and had some coffee and expressed her excitement about her getaway weekend with her husband. Do you go to work on your days off? Absolutely I don't. not. I definitely don't. I'm the other direction. Yeah. 
Joy stated that she and her husband were planning to go to dinner and a movie at the Westwood Theater that evening. Their son, Scotty, was staying with family in Dallas. Joyce and Alfred would be driving to Dallas on Sunday to pick him up. So ultimately, they were going to have the whole weekend alone, which yeah. obviously their son, I believe he was 15. I'm sure they didn't have a lot of alone time. Probably not, is... not with him being a, a highway patrolman. He probably worked really long hours. They probably didn't have a lot of personal time. So she was excited about having this weekend with just her and him. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Well, I guess Friday, Saturday, because they would be driving on Sunday. So they would at least have two days to themselves to do what they want and go out on the town. (laughs) So the night of the murder, we know that Joyce and Alfred arrived home at about 11 Mm o'clock. So almost an hour later at 11.58 p.m., the neighbors that lived caddy corner behind them, which we have a map, which we will put on um, our social media platform so you can see it, that neighbor's daughter hears something outside her window. So she goes to get her dad and he runs outside and he finds Alfred tied up and he's got something on his head and he's bleeding. And Alfred tells the neighbor, go to my house, go check on Joyce. She's in the bedroom. She's hurt. You got to go check on her. So the neighbor goes into the white house he runs into the back bedroom where Joyce is Uh, he finds her lying in blood in their bedroom floor and next to her is laying a metal pipe and the newspaper stated there was friction tape which I didn't know what that was but in other articles they explained it to be black tape like electrical tape or right yeah I'm not really sure what kind of pipe it was either just said a 16 inch metal pipe with friction tape the neighbor sees the pipe laying next to her the neighbor notices she's tied up and she's got a plastic bag shoved in her mouth so he proceeds to remove the bag don't touch the crime scene people thank you and then check and see if she's alive which she is not so he rushes back to his house and tells his wife to call 911 the call was placed at 12:02 a.m. from the neighbor's home so they get there at 11 o'clock the neighbor hears what's going on at 11:58 p.m. and then at 12:02 a.m. which would be Saturday the 15th a 911 call is placed Alfred tells his neighbor there were two men in my home, two African-American men wearing khaki pants. They were about 5'10", and they're each weighing about 200 pounds. They broke into my house. Um, I was in the living room, and Joyce was in the bedroom. I heard Joyce scream, and when I went into the bedroom, I found this man standing in one corner of my room, and this other man was standing over Joyce, and she's bleeding, and then I was struck in the head, and I lost consciousness. Then when I woke up, I saw that my wife had been beaten. I'm I'm tied up. I can't get up. So I had to hop. I crawled. I rolled to get myself out of the house and, and you know, scream for help. So he's telling the neighbor all of this on the lawn of what's going on. So Bob Zumwalt was the first policeman that arrived on scene. He then notified Dwayne Pyburn, who was the sergeant, and they had to notify Chief Warren Dodson of the situation, who was actually not in town. So he actually had to come back the next day because of the severity of the incident. Mm-hmm. The ambulance arrives and takes Alfred to Hendricks Hospital, which is significant because we had family go to Hendricks Hospital. That's the hospital in which I was born. Amazing. I didn't even know that. Yep. Um, The nurses that took care of Alfred said that he kept asking if his wife was okay. Was she there? Has she been brought in? Is she awake? You know, what's what's going on? Um, The nurses knew that she had not made it, but they had not told him yet. Um, But one of the nurses stated that he had blood on his hands, in between his fingers, under his fingernails, and above his elbows. Which seems like a lot of blood. If you just go in, I mean, maybe if he like grabbed her and hugged her, was trying to like revive her, maybe Mm -hmm. you would have it on your hands, but in your fingernails... I don't know. It seems 
weird. And the only wound that he had was on his forehead. And there was no other wounds on his body. So some of the blood on his hands could have been from his own. It could have Correct. been his own blood, right? If he's bleeding from the head. True. So. Or if he's laying next to her and she's bleeding and he's laying maybe on his stomach or on his back when he's knocked unconscious, his clothes could be absorbing that blood yep. on the top. True. The nurses kept asking him if he had any other wounds on his body because of the amount of blood that they that he had on him. But he told the nurses, no, that's Joyce's blood. It's not mine. One of the nurses went up to the doctors and told them, you know, he's asking for his wife. What, what do I tell him? They said, you know, just, just tell him what happened. So the nurse went over to him and told Alfred that his wife had passed away, that she was not alive. And he responded with a very loud sob and said, no, no, I couldn't help her. So mm. kind of makes you wonder, you know, what... What happened? Yeah. yeah. So Dr. Jerry Williams, he was the medical examiner that performed the autopsy on Miss Joyce White. Her ultimate cause of death was massive injuries to the head, including skull fractures, laceration, and brain hemorrhages. Uh, she had nine wounds on her head, and four of which were massive. Well, that's got to be some pretty blunt force. Like, you got to be, it's not just like a slight hit. It had to be like a really big, really massive hit. And it has to be filled with rage, because if you think about nine massive wounds, I mean, your head's not that big. And then to think that you have nine separate head wounds, so whoever did that is full of rage i mean they're mad and only in the head that's a lot a nine is a lot uh four of the head wounds were considered massive by the medical examiner and any of those four could have caused the ultimate death so any one of the four there was no need for another three at that extent because any any of those could have caused it but due to how bad she was hit one of the four massive ones most likely she was knocked unconscious which is why they didn't find any defensive wounds there was no scratches there was nothing under her nails there was nothing to show that she had any defensive wounds oh she didn't have defensive wounds on her arms or anything like that there was nothing showing Mm. that she was trying to fight back so obviously she was knocked unconscious because she the first time she would have fought back and also because of how bad her head wounds were she would have had convulsions one article in the abilene reporter news said she may have moaned or groaned while she was unconscious trying to wake up or being in and out of consciousness Mm -hmm. she could have been groaning or making noises um but she wouldn't have been able to scream for help or ask for help she would have been completely knocked out or out of sorts Okay, so the next day, uh, the newspaper headlines were flooded with pictures of the crime scene and the house with details of what had been said. Alfred stated he thought it was a robbery because he was missing some cash from his wallet and a watch. He said Joyce's purse was knocked over, her wallet was left open on the floor of their bedroom. Um, The newspaper stated that there was blood on the walls, ceiling, carpet, mattress cover, and dresser. There is a picture of the crime scene that shows two separate pictures of the house, one of the front and one of the back. And so there's an arrow pointing to, they called it the murder bedroom. And then there's a picture of their bedroom and you can see the carpet's all bloody. And there's a picture of the bed. I don't remember seeing blood on the bed though, on the mattress. But the pictures are old. It's black and white. So it's kind of hard to tell, but it's unmistakable that the carpet is all bloody. So that must have been the carpet that our dad and granddad had to pick up. I guess they cut it out and rolled it up and stuck it outside. Ooh. They also found blood smeared on the bathroom and two sets of bloody footprints in the alley. So the blood smeared in the bathroom. They don't, don't get that. They don't explain no. what is smeared. Like it's is it like the handprints smeared. 
Is that on the sink? Is it on the floor? It doesn't. Is I never found anything that said specifically what that was. And there weren't any pictures of the bathroom either. It just makes you kind of wonder, like, did one of the people that hit them, maybe did they get cut from the pipe? Or did they get cut by some other reason and they went in the bathroom? Or was that them going in the bathroom? Like, who? And because DNA was not used right. yet, right. they don't know Maybe they were looking for drugs in the bathroom. Yeah. Or more jewelry. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't at some point back then they used to hide, people would hide money like in the back of the toilet or in the freezer. So maybe they were in the bathroom looking for money. Maybe. Although this isn't the mob or anything like that. So I don't think they put the money in the toilet. You never know. You never know. (laughs) It's a small town of Abilene. It could be the mob. Maybe. Crazier things have happened. The couple were members of the Belmont Baptist Church. And the day after the murder, the reverend there, his wife, here we go again with Mrs. Bob Rich. She don't have a name. Her name is Mrs. Bob Rich, (laughs) is sent into the house to clean the bedroom and the rest of the house. So they send the reverend's wife to clean up a A homicide because someone killed her. It's a crime scene. Clean it up the next day. Like if they didn't get enough pictures or they didn't get enough samples, it's too late now. Yeah, because our dad and granddad have already taken that carpet and it's in the trash. And so this is, and from what I understand, mom's dad worked for the city of Abilene. Yep. And when things would be out of sorts like this, they would call him and he would dispose of whatever it was, whether it was an animal in the road Mm -hmm. or debris in the road, he would take care of it. Yep. So mom and dad were somewhat newly married. I think dad would have been 20, 21. Yep. And he would go on some of these calls. So he went on a call with our grandfather to pick up some bloody carpet Mm -hmm. and drop it in the Abilene landfill. Which is why he wanted to go every other time because who knew what the next call was going to be, right? Insane. Could be an animal. It could be a bloody carpet. You don't even know. So Scotty, their son, was in Dallas at Six Flags visiting his uncle when he was notified of this horrific crime and they brought him back home. Joyce was buried the next day, which is really quick, by the way. It is. And maybe it's because... 717. So that would have been three days after, right? Because it happened on the 14th. Mm -hmm. So she was buried three days later in Elmwood Cemetery, which we have lots of relatives there. Our grandfathers, both grandfathers are there. In fact, the grandfather that took out the the carpet is also there. There were 150 50 people that showed up to pay their respects to the family and for Joyce. The graveside was closed off to the public, but they said people lined the streets along the cemetery and the church because there were just so many people that wanted to pay their respects. And to understand how small these towns are, I mean, Tuscola even now has one grocery store mm-hmm. and like two <laughs> two cafes. And I don't even know Ovalo what they have. We've only really been to the church Yeah, I've not really been into the town of Ovalo. I've only just been like, yeah, just to the church like you have. I think they mainly do all of their stuff in Tuscola, which is probably why the schools combined. I know the school there now is Jim Ned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that's probably the only grocery store. And they would have had to drive quite a ways to Abilene High School because from Tuscola and Ovalo right there to Abilene is at least 15 minutes. Like, yeah, 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah. It's a pretty good drive just to go to school. or so, And that's a lot of people to show up to, yeah. to a funeral. Well, and this was in the newspapers. That's where we got all this information. So people were probably intrigued by what's going on and let's get a glimpse of their family or even maybe the suspects might show up there. You mm-hmm. don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sometimes absolutely. they happen. They show up to the scene of the crime or somehow show up in the background to just kind of admire their work. 
Okay, so a week goes by. There's a statewide manhunt for these two unknown men who have brutally beaten a woman to death in her own home while her husband was tied up and restrained. All for some change and a watch. $25 and a watch. I mean, that's insane. A woman has to die over change and a watch. And, you know, not just stabbed or shot, but like beat in the head nine times. And then... That's just really bad. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Um, and then, okay, so on July 20th, there is a newspaper heading that states the case is stalled. So on July 20th, there's a newspaper article saying that the case is stalled, and they mentioned two men were arrested in Fort Worth, but there hasn't been any news since. There have also been two incidents of screen cutting in Abilene since the murder, one being Billy Ruth Faulkner. That is the sister of Mr. Al. So this is significant because they found a cut screen at Joyce and Alfred's house the night that Mm -hmm. Mrs. White was murdered. And there's a picture with the crime scene photos. Like I was saying, there's the two pictures of the house. There's a picture of the bedroom with all the blood and everything. And in the middle, there's a picture of the screen. And you can see it doesn't really look like a straight cut. Like when someone says they cut a screen, I just imagine a straight line. Straight line down the middle. But the picture looks more like a circle. Like they cut it and maybe tried to stick their hand through or something. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's a picture of it in the newspaper. So back to the screen cutting of his sister, the story that she reported was that her daughter, Kay, 18, had seen a man standing in the alley behind their house and that a window screen in Kay's room had been slashed. Uh, Billy Ruth and her daughter were the only ones at home. Kay looked out her bedroom window to see a tall, slender man wearing a long sleeve shirt. Kay ran from her bedroom to tell her mother the screen had been slashed about 14 inches. Billy Ruth called police and requested a patrol of the home. Chief Warren Dodson commented on the case that there was, and this is in quotes, absolutely no evidence to indicate that the person involved in Mrs. White's murder had anything to do with the screen cutting. So we have two separate incidents of screen cutting in Abilene. Mm -hmm. One being Alfred and Joyce White, and then the second one being his sister, Billy Ruth Faulkner. So is it maybe a person that he had gotten in trouble as a patrolman? I'm sure he had many enemies, right? So maybe they were coming after him, and maybe that's why they didn't kill him. It's because maybe they wanted him to live without her, right? That was his punishment, maybe. You know, you put, me in, you put me in jail. You took me away from my family. Now I'm going to do the same thing to you. And, and not only that, I know where your sister lives. Let me just show you by cutting her screen as well. And I'm going to cut it like, you, like I cut yours because I want you to know it was me. Or I'm not cutting your wife's screen. I'm cutting the screen where your daughter's bedroom is. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's low. Yeah, that's yeah. scary. And she's young. She's a young girl. Yeah, she's only 18. So that that is very scary. Twist in the story. Okay. On plot twist. Plot twist. A pivot. Pivot. <laughs> pivot. So on July 21st, which would have been a week to the day from when Joyce was murdered, headlines come out that Alfred has been taken to Austin and he's now being arrested for his wife's murder. Not Alfred. Definitely. It can't be the husband. Sometimes it's a husband. It's never the husband. There were two assailants in his house. What are you saying? He made it up? I mean, that's what they're saying. Hmm. The initial headlines, though, had no reason why they arrested him. All they put was a comment stating that a complaint had been filed by someone in the department, but they didn't give any other information in regards to that. Chief Warren Dodson was the one that arrested him, took him before the judge who denied all bail. No bail, no bond, go straight to jail. And that's what he did. He did an interview with columnist for Abilene Reporter called Catherine Duff. 
And even though it's been a week since he had this head trauma from being hit in the head, he states that he's still very hazy, everything's very foggy since he had been beaten, and he did not do this. He did not hurt his wife. He was the one who was hit. Um, Catherine also asked him how his son was doing because he's only 15. His mom had just been murdered in their home while he's in Dallas, which is interesting that it happens when he's not there. Convenient. So if... Alfred is innocent. Whoever did chose a weekend where obviously they didn't want to hurt a child. Or if he's guilty, he chose it because he couldn't do it with his son there. Somewhat premeditated. Correct. We don't know. We don't know. But Alfred told the reporter that his son is taking it like the good Lord wants him to. Which is kind of a weird response. I mean, I would be devastated if somebody took my spouse and then... I would think that my child would be devastated too because now they've lost a parent and in such an awful way. Mm-hmm. Not like they were sick and they passed away. They were beaten to death in the home for some money. Well, and not, let's not forget at this point, he's saying people broke into their house. So surely they're not still staying at the house where people broke in and his mom died, right? So that's traumatic too. So not just about the death, but being violated, somebody breaking in, and how do you know? He probably doesn't feel safe anywhere. Very true. Alfred's sister, Billy Ruth, the one that had the incident with the screen, and his sister-in-law, I'm not sure if this was his brother's wife because another fun fact, his brother, Roy, worked with our uncle at Bowman Lumber Company. That's right. I'd forgotten that information. So... Roy was a manager at the local lumber company in Abilene, and our uncle worked at the same company. So Roy was his boss for a while. Yes. Another little pivot twist there. Um, so his, so Alfred's sister, Billy Ruth, and his sister-in-law stood by his side saying, we don't believe he did this. He couldn't have done it. He loved her. There's no way in this world I will believe that my brother or my brother-in-law murdered Joyce. There's just no way. He was interviewed by press a few times, but he refused to comment about his charges or his involvement in any any way. Because he had been a highway patrolman, some of those men that he was about to be in jail with, he put there. So if you think about it, I mean, he's been a patrolman for 14 years. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't commit a really, really bad crime and be sent to Huntsville, if they were sitting out a couple year sentence, he was going to be in there with them. So obviously they didn't want to put him in a cell with one of those people. So he had to be in solitary confinement for his own safety. When he initially was put in, he only had two visitors the first day, which was interesting. The first person was Reverend Rich, which was the Reverend to Belmont Baptist Church and the spouse of Mrs. Rich that cleaned the house after Mm -hmm. the murder. He was there for an hour and a half. And then a mystery woman, Mrs. Joan White, no relation, who also came to visit him. So that was kind of interesting. All we could find about her and all that they said about her was that she was a waitress and cashier at a cafe that he frequented for coffee when he was on duty. So maybe she was she was a confidant friend of his that he could talk to maybe maybe an informant possibly i mean he's a patrolman so i don't know how much information he would need he's not a detective on the same day i know you'd found in the odessa newspaper where there was a news blackout and i didn't see this in the abilene reporter news it was and maybe it was just that section or that time frame was missing from the newspaper website that i used so but i found it in the odessa newspaper that the um, abilene reporter news executives were very upset because they weren't getting information anymore and they're like, well, we need to know what's going on. We want the details. What ended up happening is they were withholding it because they wanted to protect Alfred. Mm-hmm. And because, of, like you already mentioned, he was a highway patrolman. And so he was going to be in prison with the people that he put there for mm-hmm. the most part. Right. Mm-hmm. 
In the article I read, they wanted him to get a fair trial and not ruin his name all over Texas. So they were just upset that they weren't getting the information they needed on the details like the crime scene, the murder weapon, other stuff that we've found. But um, they stopped giving information. They're like, what's going on? We don't know. We don't know. We want to know. And because obviously the only way to communicate across the state at this time was newspapers. Right. People didn't have cell phones or internet or... If he was innocent of this and he didn't do it and he tries to be a patrolman in Austin or Odessa, he may never get a job again as a patrolman. Even if he's innocent. Because his name right. is now strewn over. So I can right. under, I can understand that. Yeah, they're trying to protect him. I get it. So five days later, he's in jail. On July 26th, Reverend Rich and Mrs. Joan White, no relation, <laughs> the two that were the first two people to see him after he went in, are subpoenaed. And it was interesting because I read that whenever Reverend Rich was subpoenaed, he told them, I don't have to tell you what I spoke to him about because I am his reverend and what he tells me is confidential. And they told him, no, that's not the case when it comes to being subpoenaed you have to tell us and he said he tried to file a motion to be set as of august the 2nd that whatever he discusses with his people of the church that it cannot be released and it was denied so he he had to and they were concerned that with him being a reverend that if he was told something then he would have to say it on the stand because he's a reverend he's a man of god he can't commit perjury there's no way he's swear in the bible alfred's attorney was a little worried about him being on the stand because if he did do it and he confessed to to his reverend he would have to say it the next day which was the 27th The grand jury heard of the case, and after 15 minutes of deliberation, they agreed that there was a case and he needed to be tried. And would you like to know what got him? What got him? The pipe. The pipe. Okay. So one of his co-workers that he was working with few days to a week prior to the murder, they were on a run together. I don't know if they, I'm assuming they were in the same patrol car. And when they left a scene, Alfred picked up this 16 inch steel pipe wrapped in friction tape and threw it in the back of the patrol car, thought nothing of it. So after everything happened, this co-worker saw what was the murder weapon and went and told his commanding officer or whoever above him, hey, I saw Alfred with that. I saw him pick it up and that is why initially they didn't say to protect him Got because they wanted to make sure that it wasn't out yet what it was because they didn't want they it didn't to get want out. Alfred going and I mean, doing something to the guy or somebody yeah. else doing something to him. Exactly and who knows where that pipe was I mean they let random people in to clean a house who knows where the pipe was and if they got rid of the pipe then it's just hearsay right and what about the person the pipe actually belonged to they're probably like oh my god if I hadn't left that there. I'm trying happening. to figure out what kind of pipe is this to do so much I know, damage. I have images of like a metal pipe with like an elbow on it, you know, those old pipes with the threads and the elbow. Yeah. And then I have images of like black electrical tape or even like the tape that used to put on tennis rackets, you know, the mm-hmm. green tape, mm-hmm. grip tape. I mean, it could. I, I don't know. I don't randomly see pipes laying around the ground with electrical tape on them. Or, sorry, what was the tape called exactly? Friction tape. Friction tape. Correct. So one interesting thing that you found, I think, in the Odessa paper yes. uh, was a quote about what he said that yes. we only found in the Odessa paper. Yeah, more examples. This is something that he said during the trial, uh, and this is all in quotes. So here's what he said. I will never forget the sound of the blows that struck my wife. It's like when you put a hot branding iron on wood and it leaves an impression. I could never erase those sounds. If he was unconscious, how, how did he hear, he hear them? There you go. I don't know. But 
interesting that it wasn't, I didn't find that anywhere else. And then on 729, there was a two column editorial in the Abilene Reporter News because, you know, it's a delicate topic to talk about race. Race is a delicate topic. Yes. And in this situation, we have a white couple, one of which has been murdered and one has been beaten. Well, and the husband of the murdered woman is a policeman, Mm -hmm. which doesn't make it any better. Does not. And he is claiming that two African-American males, one has beaten his wife and the other one has knocked him out and finished the job. We don't know. Why are they wearing khakis? Why are they wearing khakis? I don't know. Why aren't they wearing like all jeans? Why aren't they just wearing jeans or sweats? This is his story that he went with, so we weren't there. Maybe he was wearing khakis. Maybe, and he just panicked. Or maybe his neighbor was wearing khakis, and that's when he panicked. He was wearing pants like yours. <laughs> what are those called? One of these. There was a two-column editorial where Abilene Reporter News wanted to make sure that the city of Abilene and anybody else reading did not agree, nor did they want the city of Abilene to think that it was okay what he did. That if he is guilty and he's proven that he did do this, that they are not okay with him using two other men of a different race and throwing them under the bus because it was not okay. The two-column editorial was written by one of the reporters of Abilene Reporter News, and he made it very clear that Abilene, city of Abilene does not support this. We don't agree with this. We don't want the city of Abilene to think that we view African-Americans in that way. I found a separate article that's similar but different. It's, um, I don't remember the name of the committee, but the person that is speaking, his name is Howard Caver, and he's talking about a committee that would only meet about three times a year and he wanted them to have goals and everything in this committee, but he stressed a need for better community relations because, and this is quote, you can see that Abilene is not the best city in the world as far as community relations are concerned. Caver maintained that the murder of Joyce White, wife of a former highway patrolman, Al White, last summer brought Abilene as close to the brink of racial disorder as it has ever been. So, related, but crazy in that this could have spawned a whole racial riot in Abilene. That is insane that he, a decorated officer, someone that's supposed to keep people safe, keep the peace, and I'm sure because of in the 60s with the race and everything going on, he had to deal with that. So it's crazy how he throws them under the bus like that, knowing what's going on in the world during that time. Maybe he just thought he would get away with it. We still don't know. He may be innocent. So on August 8th of 1967, this is when they've decided that they're going to sort the death penalty out for Alfred. The grand jury has read everything, the judges read everything, and they say, yeah, we agree. It needs to be death. So they set the trial for October 23rd of 1967. I'm not sure what happened. I did lots of research and I couldn't find why it was moved, but it was moved to February of 1968. Yeah, because all Four months later. The stuff that we found is in March of 1968. Yeah, so I, I tried to, I mean, that was when the trial was set. The papers leading up to it keep saying, you know, trial, White's trial, October, October, October. And then in October, there's nothing. So it doesn't say why it was moved. But for oh, some yeah. other reason, it was moved. The judge at the time was Judge J.R. Black. He denied Bond, but wouldn't give a reason why. Possibly for his safety. I mean, other people out there, especially, I mean, you just said that two African-American men broke into your home and bludgeoned your wife. Maybe it is safer you stay in jail. Yep. 
probably. Even though the people on the other side of your wall are just as bad as the people outside. But at least they can keep tabs on him. Yeah. Reverend Rich uh, had attempted to see him again while he was in jail, but the sheriff, George Maxwell, wouldn't let the reverend in. But when they talked to the sheriff, he said, no, I, I didn't say he couldn't see him. I just told him he needs to come during pastoral times. So apparently there was one hour window on Sundays from one to two that the pastor could come see their people. No other time could they do it. And the sheriff was not about to bend the rules for him or anybody else. Wow. Um, and then he could also see family members, blood relatives only, between two and three on Saturday and Sunday. Um, and his brother Roy that our uncle worked with, he, I guess he worked on electronics a lot. So he had electronic books that he would take to his brother to read while he was in jail. Like electronic books? Like ebooks. <laughs> <laughs> Similar but not the same. They had ebooks in the 1960s. That's awesome. So trial day one is on February 28th, 1968. I know the trial initially, like I said, was set on October, but mm -hmm. now it's in February, at the end of February. And the prosecutors that are going to go against Alfred is uh, Ed Painter and Sam Cleveland. Our favorite. Also known as? The Salty Prosecutor. <laughs> the newspaper actually described him as salty. They did. Which I didn't it's even know. It's not just our term, but they actually called him that in the newspaper. In the 1960s. Mm -hmm. So it's not a new term, people. Nice try. Yeah. His attorney, Alfred's attorneys, are A.L. Dusty Rhodes and Tom Creighton. So whenever uh, Rhodes is preparing for the trial, he looks through the evidence and decides, you know, I want to take out the pipe that was used to kill her, the jewelry that was supposedly missing, and her clothing. Are you allowed to remove the murder weapon from... Are you allowed to do that? I mean, he attempted, and I, I, I'm not sure... What I may think is that the pipe is... He's he trying to say the pipe is hearsay, like... This person says that he saw It seems saw like him. the pipe is the first thing that tied Alfred to the crime. So is he trying to remove that to... Well, obviously, because he's a prosecutor. Well, he's the prosecutor. No, he's Rhodes, not the defense. Rose is, oh, Rhodes okay. is the defense. Got it. And he's, so, yeah. He's, so, trying, he's trying He's trying yeah. to get rid of that. Yeah. And then the jewelry, because... Which later on in the eyewitness accounts and stuff, they'll explain. But the jewelry that Alfred initially said was stolen, they actually found in the garage. Which is okay. interesting because if they stole it, why did they leave it? And yep. unless he did it. Unless it was dropped. Like if it was placed in the garage, that's one thing. But if it were dropped or, you know, placed somewhere where it would be really obvious, like they're just trying to get away so they just drop it and run, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then her clothing, which again, there's some more details about her clothing later. But he wanted to throw out some of her clothing as well. He also wanted to throw out some character witnesses like Mrs. Joan White. No relation. No relation. She was the waitress and cashier at the nearby cafe that he would go and have coffee at. Um, he wanted to throw her out, I think, because it looked like he may have been having a little something-something mm -hmm. on the side. Mm -hmm. And then again, he was afraid that with Reverend Rich, another character witness, that if he gets on that stand, he's not going to commit perjury. Yeah. And I don't know what they've discussed. And right. his wife cleaned up the crime scene, so I'm not really he sure. He very well could have admitted to his reverend, hey, I did it. I don't know how to tell anybody, but I did it. And who I knows? I'm playing with God. What did his wife find in that room? What did his wife disclose to him that she found? Who who knows? Um, Alfred did make a statement, which this is interesting. Being a policeman in this situation, you would think that everything would go by the book because they're all policemen and he knows his rights. So he makes a statement that some of his rights were violated, that he was deprived of due process of law due to being arrested without a warrant. 
So when those policemen came and got him and took him to Austin, they didn't have the legal right to do so. I wonder why they took him to Austin. That's a good question. I don't know. He said he was not offered an attorney. He was taken to Austin without being told what he was being charged with with, or what he was being accused of. So they didn't tell him, you know what, we think you did it. We need you to get in the car. We're taking you to Austin. And they also said that they gave him two lie detector tests. I don't know if that's where the lie detector test was with Ovalo and Abilene being so small. That makes sense. Oh, I bet that's what they did. That makes sense. They took him to Austin. Now, how long is Austin from Ovalo? Maybe eight hours? So it's about four hours from here. So probably more like five. Five. So for five hours on the way there, he's questioned the entire time. Not given any reason of why or what is going on. They just have a little bit of a legitimate complaint there. Yeah, and it caused him so much anguish. He had severe diarrhea. And they had to put it in the paper. (laughs) They put in the paper that he had severe diarrhea. He put in the paper that it caused him severe diarrhea. That whole situation caused him severe diarrhea. Not the possibility of him being the murderer, but, you know, being in the car for five hours and not knowing why. And then given two letter type of tests, which it doesn't say if he passed or failed them. Okay. It just says he was he was given them. When he was in the courtroom for the first day of the trial, reporters stated that he looked like he had lost a few pounds from the last time they saw him, which was just four months prior. Maybe it was from the diarrhea, the great equalizer. It very well may have been. And pale, but he was in good spirits, which, I mean, you're on, you're on trial for your life. Can't imagine. Yeah. Um, and so that day, they only were able to pick three jurors. Because the defense that they were going for was temporary insanity. Um, that if he did do it, he did it due to temporary insanity. So if that's that's the case, then um, yeah. they were having a hard time finding jurors that agreed or had similar opinions to temporary insanity. So they weren't able to start the trial like they wanted because they were having a hard time finding that. Um, I know there was a report that you found about the hugs. Yeah, so during one of the days, there was a noon recess, and someone from the Abilene Reporter News wrote a story that the two families, White and Milliorn, families hugged, but then there was a, basically, they recanted that. So the article about no hugs being exchanged by the parents in the trial, there was an article that said that they had hugged, but I guess Joyce's mom went and said, oh, hell no, I didn't hug them. She said there was a misunderstanding between the reporter on the scene and the rewrite man in the reporter news office about a meeting of some of the members of the two families during the noon recess uh, resulted in inaccurate report. And she was not having it that they put on there. She she made a point to make sure that they recanted their story that they hugged. And I think you said something before about it was customary that sometimes Mm -hmm. when there were trials, like the families might talk or hug or have some soft spoken words between the two of them. In this case, there was none of that business. Her mom was saying no. So on day three of the trial, they finally found their 12 male jurors. 11, which were white, and one that was African-American. So women couldn't serve on a jury then? We weren't allowed yet. When were we allowed? Not in the 60s. 73, I think, is when we were finally allowed. Yeah, so not for another five years. So we we can wash your dishes and your clothes, but we couldn't serve on a jury. And we can clean up these nasty-ass blood carpets after people be bludgeoned to death. So what would you do if your husband called you and said, Oh, honey, I need you to go clean up a crime scene. I mean, I'd be on it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie. And I'd call you, sister. I'm on my way. I'm on my way. Shoot me the address. I'll be there. So these 12 people, 12 men are on the jury. 
And the first witness that is called to the stand is Mrs. Carol Douglas. She is next door to the Whites. So the house that's behind them, which on the map you'll see, there's one behind them, which is the Monroe home, which is where he went after he was tied up. The map doesn't really show justice if you look at the handwritten map, but the Google Maps is much better where you can see that they're almost like on top of each other. So like imagine you're on a street and it curves to the left. When it curves, their house faces the curb. So it's almost like they're kind of on a corner, but not really on a corner. Their house is situated such that the houses beside them are almost catty-cornered. And so they're not in a straight line. The front of their house almost makes like a triangle with the death room, they call it, of where Mrs. White was killed. Yep. So she says that she heard a scream at 1130. So Joyce and Alfred come home from their Friday night around 11 p.m. And he is found in the front lawn of the Monroe home at 1158 p.m. So at 1130, so somewhere in the middle, Mm -hmm. she hears a scream. And then about 15 minutes later, she hears what sounds like a scream being ripped. She described it as whenever her dog would be clawing at the back screen door, that it would scratch, but it was more like a tear. But that was the sound that she heard, which would have been a bit out. if you look at the crime scene photos, the screen, like I said earlier, it's not like a straight cut. It looks like someone cut it and then ripped it because it's kind of a circle. So maybe she really didn't hear that screen being ripped open. So that would have been at about 11.45 p.m. So the neighbor that found him, his name is S.D. Monroe Jr. He was next to take the stand. And he stated that when he found Joyce in the death room, she had a very large cut on her forehead. And that he did untie her and he did take the plastic bag out of her mouth. We already established he shouldn't be messing with the evidence. People listening, don't touch anything. Don't touch anything. Take pictures, but don't touch anything. (laughs) Document. Um, And and this is where the the clothing part that I talked about earlier that Alfred's attorney Rhodes wanted to take out of the case. Some of the clothing. Monroe stated that she only had a blouse and hosiery on, but no skirt. So it's interesting that... She didn't have a skirt on. What Was she walking to the bedroom and was she getting undressed as she was going to the bedroom? And they startled her because there's these two men in her room. Or was she getting ready for bed and he came up behind her while she was getting undressed? I don't know, but she was not wearing a skirt. But there was no signs of any assault. Yeah, maybe she just took it off. I mean, you come home from your date, you go in the bedroom, you're going to get your comfortable PJs on and watch Netflix... So you're going to... Not in the 60s. Right. You're going to watch TV. And the Now we're with the e-books, right? So you're going to turn on the giant tube television. So you got to... I'm sure they put comfortable clothes on in the 60s. Well, and I don't know. Did women sit around in their hosiery and watch TV? I don't at know. At 11.30 at night? I hope not. You have to ask mom. Yeah. Maybe we'll she ask, knows. We'll ask her. And, and maybe, I mean, maybe Mr. White was going to get lucky. I mean, he just took his wife out on the town. She's probably like, he's going to be in here. home. It's just those two. It's time. Right? She did have her feminine time earlier in the day That's at the true. salon. She got her so she got her done. hair done, her nails done. So. so he claims that he saw blood on the walls and the ceiling. And that when he found Alfred, that he was in a semi-conscious state. Uh, he wasn't really all there. And when they asked Monroe, you know, how was this couple? When you saw them together, what were they like? Were they a happy couple? And he states that he always saw them holding hands. And, of course, a lot of the cars then had bench seats in the front. 
And anytime he saw them driving around, she was always in that middle seat next to him. She was never on the passenger side. Mm -hmm. So from the outside, it seemed that they were a very happy couple. So this just didn't really seem like a situation where... Isn't that how it always is, though? It always seems great from outside looking in. Perception is everything. Then Mr. Douglas took the stand. He's the husband of Mrs. Carol Douglas that they lived so close together that heard the scream. He told his version of what happened, which was the same as his wife. However, he did not hear the sound of the scream being cut. He heard the scream, which sounded like a man screaming at 1130. And he thought it was a man maybe having a bad dream because it it was a one-time scream, but nothing with the screen door being cut. But one thing that's interesting, which if you look at the map... Mr. Douglas thought it was very odd that Alfred went the way he went to the Monroe home when it was a much closer shot to the Douglas home. Yes. So why he didn't just go straight to the Douglas home, he doesn't know, but he did state that. When you look at it, it, it is much closer. So Especially not when really... you look at the Google, if you look at the drawing, it looks like their house is further away. But if you look at the actual Google image that we have, the houses are much closer. It's a much harder path to go the one he took than to just go straight to the Douglas's house. The next witness to take the stand was Mrs. Aleph Ann Harris. And she lived somewhat behind the Whites' home. She lived at 1858 Jeanette Street, which was next door to the Monroes, mm-hmm. but across the alley. And it was kind of across the alley and curved around. So she couldn't really see the White home from the back of her house. Yeah. But walking to the alley, she could see their home. So she stated that at 11 o'clock that Friday night, she went to the alley to empty her trash. She didn't see anything suspicious, but she did have her dog with her. And she talked about her dog always barking at strangers and knowing something was going on. Usually he would be barking going towards the area. She just stated she found it odd that he did not bark at the house. or Because if she went out there at 11, the intruders that... Alfred claimed were in the house would have been getting in there or would have been just gotten in there. But they were already in there. His story was they were in there when they got when she got home. So they would have already been inside. The dog wouldn't have had anything to bark at unless they That's were true. trying to leave. That's true. And I guess maybe she's just stating, you know, I would think nothing that out of would, the ordinary at that. Yeah, time. everything seemed normal in the alleyway on Jeanette Street. Everything was fine. But one thing that was interesting that Monroe stated was that once he well let me ask you a question. If you're tied up and someone that you love is hurt in another place and you are free and you can run, what is your first instinct to do? Where Am I outside already or am I still in the room with my loved one? You're away from that person. I would have never left them. Well, let's say that the intruders drug you outside. I would be trying to go back in where my loved one is. And if somebody finds you and unties you, where are you going to go? I'm going to go straight to where my loved one is. So where do you think Alfred went? Not straight to where his loved one was. (laughs) (laughs) He said when he untied him, he stayed right where he was at. That is weird. And the ambulance hadn't arrived yet. Maybe he was afraid of the assailants that were still in there. But But Monroe had already been in there. But there's a possibility his wife is still alive. And Monroe had already been in there. And there was no one in there. Oh, Monroe didn't see anyone. He went in there and checked on him and he took the bag out of her mouth, untied her. There was no one there. So I find it odd that he didn't run to her her aid because that's... I mean, I very much agree with you. If, if someone, if I'm laying next to my husband and he's been beaten and I'm tied up, I'm going to do whatever I can to get untied and mm-hmm. help him. And if I can't, then I'm going to go get someone to help me screaming and untie and yelling and Absolutely. kicking stuff and whatever I can do. So two days later, bombshell, Alfred takes the stand and confesses. That bastard. <laughs> he confesses in an unconventional way. Like a he, coward? Amen. <laughs> he says he does it without saying he did it. 
So he's trying he to take... He must have done it, right? The headlines say, I must have done it. Now his new version of what has happened. Okay. So now that he remembers and there weren't... So there were never two African-American men in the house, mm. which is very, very sad that he put those people in the home. And those two men that were arrested in Fort Worth, their whole entire days were ruined just because they were black. Right. And just and because... who knows what happened to them after that? I mean, what if they lost their jobs? And like, we don't know. Didn't even ever release their names. So these two innocent guys are just doing whatever and... To get pulled in, and I'm sure they let him go. I'm sure that everything went fine, but still. And, and it's sad. We don't know. Just because he lied. Mm-hmm. So he states that he was in the home with Joyce, and she did have the steel pipe in her hand. And she was walking down the hallway towards the bedroom, and he kind of playfully grabbed her on the butt, which they stated it was a prank that he did often, so it wasn't out of the ordinary for him to do so. And the next thing he knew, everything went black. And when he came to, he saw Joyce lying on the floor covered in blood in front of him. She had the pipe. He's saying she had the pipe. Was this some kind of weird sex game where they're taking a lead pipe to the bedroom? So she had the pipe, but then he woke up and she was dead. Correct. Well, she's covered in blood. So he goes over to her. So he's standing, right? He's not laying. He's not unconscious. He drops to his knees by her side and calls her name. So this is where I think we both kind of thought, is this This a scream? scream. I think so. Is this the scream that the neighbors heard? A male scream. Just one scream. He realizes what he did. If he snapped and was temporarily insane and didn't know what he was doing in a fit of rage, now he realizes what happened and he's like, oh shit. But then he calls out her name. So the scream that they heard, is it him realizing what he did? Is it a scream while he's hitting her? Or are they hearing him scream her name? Yep. Like hoping to God she's not dead, but knowing she's dead. Mm -hmm. You know? So he runs through the house, feeling lost and unsure what to do next. He's just running to every room of the house like he's just out of sorts. He ran back in where she was. He put his head on her chest, which may be how he got the blood on him. Yeah, probably. And he he hears nothing. There's no pulse. She unfortunately has passed away. And he knew that he had to be the one to do it. There was no one else in the home. He can't recount what has just happened before grabbing his wife on the butt. So obviously he did it. He's covered in blood. So his first instinct is to, to kill himself with his service gun. Just off himself. He didn't have to deal with it. I don't have to take the blame for it. I don't have to look at the people I love and tell them that I killed my wife. But his first thought is his son. And he thinks, if I do this, he's going to think I did it on purpose. He's going to come up with his own idea of why I did this. And I don't want that. So I'm going to make it look like somebody else did it. So he went around to the house. They had jars of change. And he took some of the change and two watches and he hid them in the garage. So that is why the policeman found the jewelry Mm -hmm. in the um, the garage. In the, yes, in the garage. Um, then he went to the back door and cut it. So he had to make it look like somebody broke in, which makes it even more twisted that he then must have gone after the murder four days later and went to his sister's house to his mm-hmm. niece's bedroom and cut the screen to scare them. He was trying to sell his story, basically. But scare them to the point that they would call 911 and make a report. Because maybe he was going to kill again. Maybe. Very well. Maybe they knew something that he didn't want other people to know. So then he goes into one of the bedrooms in the back and he cuts a Venetian blind cord from the blinds and he ties his wife's, his dead wife's hands behind her back and then he shoves a plastic bag in her mouth as a gag, even though she's already dead. This is where he's formulating his story. The woman that he married, that birthed his son, that he just bludgeoned to death, shoves a plastic bag in her mouth like she meant nothing. Then he goes into the bathroom and hits his head against the tub to make himself look beat up. So this is why there's... There's smeared blood in the bathroom and... 
But what doesn't make sense is the two sets of bloody footprints. Unless it was him running. And where were the bloody footprints? In the alley. The bloody footprints could have been from the lady cleaning up the crime scene. It was the, but they found them that night. That was a piece of evidence they found. But how do we know that wasn't him running, running one way and running back? I mean, that's two sets. Do they match up the footprints of the blood to his shoes? They didn't say. Well, it was bare feet. His footprints. Oh, okay. I wonder if he was barefoot when he was in the Monroe house. Memorial's yard. Oh no, that would be a good good thing to know. So after he's beat himself up and he's bloody, he puts on a pair of cotton work gloves and he ties his own hands up with Phoenician blind cord and then he puts his feet through them so that his hands are behind his knees. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why he put the work gloves on. I, I guess was just gonna say that too. I don't know why. I guess so that his blood wouldn't get on the cord, maybe. Because they find these work gloves in the home afterwards, so he puts them on just to tie himself up to take them off. And they said that they knew whoever did it had to put it on because they were drenched from the inside out, yeah. not the outside in. Yeah. So they didn't use it when they did the killing. They put them on the afterwards, which is kind of even more creepy because when he goes to the hospital, he still has blood on his hands and in between his fingers after having gloves on. Like, can you imagine how much blood that had to be? It had to be everywhere. So after he ties himself up and puts the Venetian cord around his knees, then he goes out back and throws himself in the front yard and yells for help. And then this is when Monroe finds him. Alfred talks about many times where he wanted to tell the truth, but but he just couldn't. And so now they're trying to find a motive. They ask him, you know, did you have any reason to kill your wife? And he's like, absolutely not. I had no reason. I loved her. I would never dream of killing her. We never fought. We never had crosswords with each other. I have no reason to kill her. And then a woman by the name of Pat Lydia was called to the stand. And she was known around the other police officers as having a reputation that was not good. So the newspaper had to describe her so perfectly. Like I know even some (laughs) of the newspaper articles you read, they would tell what they were wearing. Like it didn't even matter. It had nothing to do with the article, but they would say, oh, a nice two-piece cream outfit they were wearing. Like it didn't matter. Like a bouffant hairdo. So they describe her as a pretty blonde 21-year-old from Abilene. And she gets on the stand and she says that she had three rendezvous with him on the side of the road where he bought her Valentine candy, perfume, and he kissed her. Hmm. So that's damning for him because then now we have motive. Here's this patrolman who's 37, married to a 38-year-old woman who is starting to get gray in her hair and they have a 15-year-old son and now there's this pretty 21-year-old that's giving him attention. I mean, did he want to off his... His wife, so that he could be with her. She's getting in the way of his rendezvous. I mean, who knows? <laughs> so they ask him about this girl, and he tells them, I would use her in a way to get information for work, but I never gave her anything in exchange for this information. So she was an informant. She Some was. an informant. I'm just not sure what kind of criminal informant she could be for a patrolman. I mean, all he did was patrol the highways. Right, but I mean, I'm sure if he, like, say somebody robs something or something, and so he knows a little bit about somebody, he's going to go to the people that are in the neighborhood and say, hey, you know, we heard this happened. Do you have any information? So there's still maybe not an informant, like the formalized version, but maybe she gave him information on other people that he was doing investigations on. Like maybe he pulled somebody over for speeding or drunk driving or something like that and so she maybe she knew people in the area and was able to because it seems like she did it with the, some of the other cops mm-hmm. if she had a reputation well her reputation was to be a hoe for show. show. 
So he did admit, you know, to getting information from her, but he did admit in one occasion he did get carried away and he did kiss her, but it didn't go any further than that. So, I mean, that says something. It's not just hearsay at that point. He had some type of feeling for her, even if it was just sexual, to kiss her. Three rendezvous? I mean, that's not just one time. Yeah. It had to lead up to something. So that doesn't give a very good motive. And if you bought her something in February, isn't that Valentine's Day? Yeah. She said so, Valentine candy. Yeah. So... Um, Poor Miss White. So she didn't get no candy. <laughs> so Alfred's attorney Creighton wanted to debunk what she's saying by saying, you know, her pattern of conduct was apparently known by the other officers. And um, he states when he's talking to the jury, I don't believe that you believe Al White would murder his wife over that type of person. So he so didn't. She was basically trying to diminish her. Correct. You yeah. know. Yeah. Make her not look very credible. And then the prosecutors claimed that he had purchased 48 feet of Venetian blind cord at Montgomery Ward. I remember that store. And I remember that store. I remember we had one here in Plano and we, we went there all the time. And I remember going there for Christmas and getting Christmas gifts. So just a department store. Um, so why do you need four feet of Venetian blind? 48 feet. I'm sorry. But you said that he cut it off the blind that is what, that's what he said whenever he... Okay, but now we know clearly he didn't cut off the blind. He just had extra cord that he bought. And that. 48 feet's a lot of feet it of Venetian blind. Um, Maybe he didn't know how much he would need, so he bought extra. And he purchased this just a few days before the incident. More premeditation. Like the sun is gone. He purchased this. That's what she was tied up with. Mm -hmm. Is it coincidental? Did he buy it for something else and then remembered, oh, shit, I have this cord that I can use to tie her up with. And I can tie myself up with it too. So the prosecutors claim that he purchased this cord to practice a t technique that he would need to tie himself up. So he would have to have extra in case he had knots in it that he couldn't get out or yeah, had to cut it. broke it or what have you. He would have enough. But what's also interesting is that Dwayne Pyburn demonstrated that he tied himself up the same way that Monroe found him. Because in training, they're taught how to do that. And Pyburn used a slip knot and a cinch knot, which is exactly the same type of knots hmm. that Alfred had on him when he was found by Monroe. So it's interesting how what he was taught in police school is what also helped him try and pretend that he was tied up. So they brought a medical expert up, Dr. Neil Birch. He is a psychiatrist. He did a psych exam on Alfred on 7-16, which would have been two days after the murder. And he uh, did an exam for two and a half hours. And he stated if Alfred had been in an altered state of consciousness... He would not have known what he was doing or been able to go back and recount what he did when he was unconscious. And he couldn't really state whether or not it was possible with him. It was possible, but he couldn't say whether or not this is what happened to him. Um, so he's saying it's possible to get yourself in an altered state of unconsciousness. People can do it, but he can't confirm if that's what actually happened to Alfred. Right. Correct. Yeah. Right. He couldn't, unless couldn't seeing him it. in that. Yeah. He, there's At no the way. Time. Yeah. yeah. And the last witness they had was Miss Gladys Billingsley. She was the witness at Montgomery Ward that actually sold the 48 feet of Venetian blind to him. And, I mean, it is interesting. 48 feet's a, a lot of Venetian blind cord. And I guess it's not very thick, Venetian blind cord. It's kind of thin. I would ex imagine that it's probably the same width as, like, the cord that's on our current blinds that we have in our houses today. I, don't, I wouldn't imagine it to be maybe a little thinner, but... And probably so comparable. You'd probably have to use quite a bit of that to really bind someone up. It just makes me wonder 
if he did premeditate it, what did he anticipate killing her and then tying her up? Or was he hoping to tie her up and then kill her? Because obviously he had some love in his heart for her. He married her and had been with Maybe her. it was completely coincidental. He may have really bought that cord for some other reason. He snapped and killed her and then panicked, wanted to make it look like someone really did break in. He might have just been like, oh, I have that cord that I just bought for whatever. So it could be coincidental. To me, that, that we sounds, don't know. It would make more sense to me that he bought the pipe a few days prior and the Venetian blind happened to be there than buying the Venetian blind and the pipe just being there. Fair enough. You know? I mean, the pipe, I don't know if he found the pipe and was like, oh, this is something to kill my wife with. I think that was like coincidental and I think Okay. The cord was coincidental. But I do think that he, I think he used the opportunity. I don't think he planned everything out as far as having Scotty leave and being alone with his wife. I think that the pieces fell into place and then he did it. Like maybe that Friday, that's when he planned it. Like, perfect. He's going to be gone and I'm going to wine and dine her. Maybe they car. had a few drinks at dinner. Maybe she was relaxed. Who knows? And so... I don't know how premeditated it was. It seems there's too many, like, that Venetian blind cord just doesn't make, it doesn't sound like something he would buy to kill her because of the way he used it. I mean, she was tied up after death. Yeah. So. That's what makes me think he didn't buy it for that and that it is coincidental, but I don't know. Unless what he tied her up with was just from the blinds, but what he tied himself up with was the extra. But then, I don't know, it just doesn't sound right to me. Um, Even though earlier that day, he had admitted that he did it, he was not sentenced at the end of that day. His attorney, our favorite attorney, Mr. Salty, salty Mr. Cleveland. Mr. Cleveland prosecutor. He stated if you put a law officer in with criminals, he will be killed. What they were charging him with was murder without malice. But what the prosecution was going for was murder with malice. So Cleveland starts yelling, malice, 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 (laughs) in the courtroom, hoping that they would change that from murder without malice to murder with malice. So then he looks to Alfred while he's on the stand (laughs) and he says to him, there's your bed over there, Al White. You made it. We didn't. Now go over there and lay in it. I love this man. He is the definition of a Southern prosecutor. Definitely a Texas man and don't mix words. He's going to tell you like it is. He stated there is not any justification on God's green earth for finding Al White insane. (laughs) And he called the act a dastardly act not worthy of him being called daddy or father by any child. Mm. So Cleveland stated in regards to the insane plea, I don't believe you'll go down that silly alley. That's the weakest sack of sawdust I've seen. (laughs) Texas, y'all. I'm going to start saying that. That is the weakest sack of sawdust I've seen. He was going out with other women and coming home to hold hands with his wife on Sunday. Mm. He showed a very good case of the kind of character that Alfred was portraying. You know, right. he was meeting with... He was stating I mean, facts. He met three rendezvous with this Pat Lydia and kissed her. I mean, his first day in jail, he's not visited by his sister. Right. Or his sister-in-law. Or he's his visited mom. by Mrs. What about Joan his White. Mom and dad? A waitress and his reverend like what does that tell you he was diddling the 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 waitress as well i think so yeah i really do (laughs) it was very very sad at the end of closing arguments the prosecutor painter goes over to joyce's mom mrs milliorn and he hands her joyce's wedding rings and the report states that they were beaten flat so a couple things run through my mind Mm -hmm. Did he take them off of her afterwards and beat them, them, 
So it looked like they tried to take them from her as part of the crime scene? Or did she have her hands on her head and he was beating her and he smashed them. smashed the rings? Um, but they said there were no defensive wounds. Right. So if there's no defensive wounds, I don't know how... I don't know how they could be beaten flat. No, I think, yeah, because if they were on her hands, then at least her hands would be broken, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they just meant specifically there were no um, defensive wounds on her forearms or anything. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, you know, when she went unconscious, her hands were laying close enough to her head where he, you know, maybe her palms were up mm-hmm. and he was hitting hitting her head and her hands at the same time. But But maybe that... Having wounds on your hands like that doesn't necessarily mean that there weren't defensive wounds because she's not really trying to defend herself. He still could have been hitting her hands Mm -hmm. and she just wasn't moving, right? So it doesn't mean that her hands weren't wounded. It just means there weren't any signs that she was fighting. That she was out. So he was just... doesn't mean that he didn't flatten her rings while they Mm -hmm. were on her hands. That's true. And that just made me really sad to think, you know, that he... He beat her so bad that he flat he would flatten her gold rings. And why would you give them to her mom? I, I don't know. That's and maybe a... maybe they did that so the jury could see and kind of tug mm-hmm. on their heartstrings too. I'm and sure. That just seemed really, really sad though. So he was convicted of murder, but unfortunately to Cleveland's want, he was not convicted of murder with mm-hmm. malice. He was convicted of murder without malice. And would you like to know what the maximum sentence was at that time for murder without malice? Please tell me. Five years in jail. For murdering your wife. Without malice. So what is the difference between with malice and without malice? Do we know? Does one mean meditation and premeditation or? So the definition of malice is that deliberate intention unlawfully to take the life of another human being, which is manifested by external circumstances capable of proof. Malice is implied when no considerable provocation appears and where all the circumstances of the killing show an abandoned and malignant heart. Well, Jesus Christ, okay. So without malice just means the absence of that? Basically, I guess that means that you did not do it deliberately or with any intention and that you were provoked. Oh, so without malice means you were provoked. Because with malice means there was no (sighs) provocation. Okay, yeah. I'm with Sam Cleveland. Malice, malice, malice. 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 (laughs) Um, So he was convicted of murder without malice and given five years. That is ridiculous. Five years. Five years. Now, he wants to get time served credit and the judge says no. And the judge says no because you are a decorated officer of the law in the state of Texas. You are a policeman, you're a patrolman. And if we give you minimum time served for being an officer and having good history, you've already been in jail for seven months. So you're only going to serve four to five months. And the way the public is going to see that is that you unintentionally murdered your wife. Sorry about that. I'll go serve four months and then I'll be out free again. So he tells him, I'm sorry, but that's not that's not going to happen. But would you like to know what prisoners could do in the 60s to get extra credit off their sentence? Be a good boy and make all the license plates? Give us your blood. What? If prisoners would donate blood, they would get a month's credit for each year for donating blood. I'm glad they don't do that anymore. And do you want their prisoner blood? Like, what if it's tainted? Obviously, it's tainted. Something's wrong with it. And they're given two days credit for each day served. So they're getting double the time. They're going to be in there less half the time. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately for Mr. White, he had a heart condition. He had lung problems. He had asthma, emphysema. 
And he was not able to donate blood. It's all smoking those cigarettes and drinking that coffee in the in the diner with, it's, with the other white. It's the hoeing around. That's what it was. All that hoeing. So on March the 6th, which was two days after he was um, sentenced, the white home had gone into foreclosure, obviously, because the last seven months, just, nothing. Oh, okay. I was going to say just for two days, but yeah, you're right. This <laughs> happened like in July of the previous year. Right. So as soon as he was arrested, up until now, no payments have been made on that house. So it was set for foreclosure, and the home was being sold for $8,400. Wow. Even though the whites bought it in January of 1960 for 9200 But seeing as... As there was a murder in the home. I guess they knocked twelve hundred dollars down. Just a little discount. And, uh, there. Or, I'm discount. sorry, $800 down. And uh, Mrs. Barbara Kirby, a secretary for a law firm, was the one that, that purchased the home. And on March 11th, he had appealed the initial decision to not give time served, and it was a, denied a second time. Judge Oxford was the one that denied it, and he was sent to Huntsville that day. His discharge date was to be set for March the 12th of 1971. And that's really all we could really find about Alfred White. Um, we did find an obituary for his sister, uh, Billy Ruth, who passed away in January of 2006, who stated that she was survived by her brother, Alfred P. White, and wife, Pat, so he remarried, of Irving, Texas. So at some point... So he, he might moved. still be in Irving. We don't know. He'll give it. Because that was 12 years ago. So if he was born in 19... 30, then he would be 88 now. So. I wonder if Pat knows that she married a murderer. Hopefully she never found out. So what do you think? Do you think that he did it with malice or without malice? I think it was with malice. There's too many things. Like it, I, I don't believe that all of those things just fell into place. Were they, like, was it his idea to take the son to, to Dallas or was it her idea? Mm-hmm. Like, it could have been his idea. And so he's just setting it up. They're, they're going to be alone. He went and bought the cord. The cord was used in the crime scene. You know, he went out of his way to go a long way around to the Monroe's instead of just right over there. Like maybe he was worried that they would get to her quick enough and maybe she would survive. Maybe that's why he took the long way to kind of prolong it. I feel like he knew what he was doing. I don't think he, maybe that's just me being... I don't believe that he blacked out and didn't know what he was doing. It feels more of a snapped than a premeditated murder. Maybe they got murder. an argument. Yeah. Maybe, maybe she wouldn't give it up. Maybe. After a night out. That's why yeah. she was half-dressed. I mean, we don't know. But it just doesn't make sense that everything up until that point seems like it could be planned, but then the rest of it seems in disarray. Like it didn't happen the way as the murder was not as planned as the premeditation part. You know, right. like... He was prepared with the pipe. He was prepared with the blind. He was prepared that they would be alone together. But then everything else goes wrong. Like, yeah, that doesn't know. make sense. The more you talk about it, the more I think, well, maybe it was all coincidental. And maybe they did get in a fight. And, and he, maybe she got mad at him. And maybe she tried to hit him. And he got it and was defending himself. Maybe she found out about his rendezvous. Maybe mm-hmm. she confronted him. Mm-hmm. And she got pissed off. And maybe she did have the pipe. Maybe she's like, oh, okay, you're going to cheat on me? I'm going to show you how. And maybe she attempted to hit him, and he but didn't hurt her, and and then and, and just then, lost it, and then realized at the end, well, shit, now what do I do? He goes into flight or fight mode. And that then makes more re- sense. It does. I mean, especially I don't because, want to put it on her and say she started it. Like I, I don't know, but maybe she found out and confronted him, and then things just went south really quickly. Mm-hmm. That makes more sense because. He is a highway patrolman. He did have a lot of training. So it seems like if it were something that he really was planning out, then he would have done a better job at it, you know? And that's why I say the beginning seems very well planned. It's the 
murder part that doesn't seem like you really had it, yeah. had it together. It just sounds like, doesn't sound exactly right. Case file 01, Joyce White, closed. Closed.